This is episode number 66, Breaking the Silence, with Ashley Mitchell. Welcome, my name is Oleg Lohid, and this is the Overcoming Odds Podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your fullest potential. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to answer some of the questions that I've been receiving regarding our upcoming event on June 15th in Austin, Texas. This is an event where you'll get a chance to hear stories from three different speakers, myself included, on the topic of belonging. In addition to hearing our personal narratives in different ways that we've been able to develop a relationship with ourselves and also our community, you'll also get a chance to connect with other people within the attendance through different breakout sessions. This is a chance for you to answer some of the questions that you might have had or connect with others on a much deeper level than you are used to from some of the other encounters that you experience within your daily life. For more information, please go to overcomingodds.today forward slash where do you belong. Now, let's get back to our guest. It was hard, she said. I was raised by generations who didn't air their dirty laundry And they were raised by generations that didn't do that. So we just didn't talk about it. We just tried to pretend it didn't happen. That conflict literally almost killed me. I needed to talk about it. I was grieving. I was suffering. But no one around me was willing to sit with me because it was uncomfortable. How do you deal with uncomfortable situations. Without further ado, please welcome Ashley Mitchell. Welcome back to another episode of the Overcoming Ads podcast. Today's guest is someone who I had the pleasure of speaking for, I believe it was closer to an hour, but might have felt like five, as I'm sure (laughs) it could have been five. Her name is Ashley Mitchell. She's the founder of an organization called Lifetime Healing, she can also be found as Big Tough Girl across every single social media platform you can imagine. And in addition, she's a birth mom, 13 years post-placement. Ashley, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here to continue our conversation that Absolutely. could have gone on for weeks and yeah, so months. I, I was somewhat right as far as having that conversation <laughs> for the five hours that, yeah. that yes. we started. Um, but I wanted to bring you onto the show and share as much of your story as I can. And the particular aspect that I wanted to focus on is this question that I've been curious about from my own experience of not only the relationship that I have with my life, but also the the relationships that I have with other people and I'm able to see how they're living their lives. And this question is, why do we not talk about the things that we're going through? And I want to open that up to you. And ba- based on my understanding of who you are and what you've shared this far, one particular angle that might make sense with a question like that is, when did that really start for you? When did you really start to explore that question as far as, you know, the things that I don't talk about ultimately are hurting me more because then I'm just bottling them within myself and not allowing other people to come in and essentially possibly help me through the challenges that I'm going through? Yes, I love this question so much. I mean, I built my whole platform around <laughs> sitting knee to knee with women and like, let's talk about it. Um For me, um, I placed my son for adoption when I was 26. So I found myself in an unplanned pregnancy that came with its own shame and disappointment and everything, not just with internally, but, you know, externally on my family, the church, my community, people that knew me. And then all of a sudden 
I gave birth. I became a mother for the very first time at 26. And then within 24 hours, I relinquished my parental rights and became a birth mother within 24 Mm. hours. And then it was like, well, now what? Mm -hmm. Right. So I (laughs) go home, empty bellied, empty armed, just expected to go back (laughs) to life as normal, but it wasn't normal. I was I was changed to like the core of who I was. And I was in this limbo hell of like, well, I don't, I can't go back because I don't fit in with like my friends that were, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like single and not parents. But I, so I was a mom, but I was childless. So I didn't fit into that category either. And trying to understand what my new identity looked like and how to coexist with that, but also growing up in a culture that didn't want to talk about it. It happened let's get over it and move on. Right. The Mm -hmm. goal was to just move forward and you made this great choice of adoption, you know, (laughs) whatever, however you want to spin that. And then, so we just need to be fine and move on. Mm -hmm. And now you have this second chance at life. And I was like, that, that didn't connect with me. That didn't make sense with me. And so now I'm in this hell of, trying to please everybody on the outside and letting them know that it's fine. Everything's fine. But I was dying internally. Like literally I was dying inside. And, um, I was raised by generations of people who didn't air their dirty laundry. And so, Mm -hmm. and they were raised by generations of people that didn't do that. And, and so we just didn't talk about it and we just tried to pretend it didn't happen. And I, um, that, that conflict literally almost killed me because Mm. I needed to talk about it and I was grieving and I was suffering, but no one around me was willing to sit with me because it was too uncomfortable. Hmm. What was the breaking point? Do you remember the, the, maybe the instance or the people that were there where you decided to break the silence and let it all out? Yes. So because I am who I am and I don't do anything halfway. <laughs> my <laughs> my self Good motto to live by in life. Yeah. <laughs> my self-destructive patterns, unfortunately, became very extreme. And everyone deals with grief and loss their own way. But when we're stuffing things and ignoring things, um, they tend to uh, get worse. Mm-hmm. And so it was a lot of casual sex partners. It was a lot of drugs. It was a lot of... Um, anything I could do to not feel the pain and loss of my son. And so I was filling that void with anything and everything that I could find. Um, and I mean, you want a poster child for Jerry Springer? Like you like put me on a billboard. Like I could have been like on his show and like, they would have been chanting his name, like Jerry, you know, it was like, Uh, And everything. And then I almost killed someone in a drunk driving accident. Um, I spent time in jail. Like I was the stereotype of what people think birth mothers are. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was doing these things because I was grieving so deeply and no one would talk to me. And I didn't know how to talk about, I didn't even know how to put a name to the grief that I was feeling because no one told me, Mm -hmm. no one told me that I was going to have so much trauma after um, placing my son for adoption. And so I just thought that this was just normal. And I remember I was living in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I'm from Utah. So this is like one extreme to the other (laughs) and was living in Nashville and, um, took a bottle of pills. There was a suicide attempt. And I remember spending a few days in the ER and then being taken in an ambulance to a mental health facility. And, I was in lockdown for like five days and they wanted to be like, what's going on with you? And I'm like, I'm fine. What are you talking to? Still, still, even in like the ultimate rock bottom, I was fine. And we didn't need to talk about it. Mm. It's kind of interesting what you just mentioned regarding going into the space of possibly committing suicide um, you know, what I've learned, and I just had a conversation like this with my friend, and we were talking about why we choose to be in unhappy situations. 
and how the per- the perception that we have is death solves it all. You know, because somehow we think that okay, if I if I kill myself or if something happens, well then my problems are solved. But really, that's not true, because no, that problem still doesn't get solved. You just have found a way to I think I'm not sure if escape's the right word, but to get away from it. But really, you know, it's it, it that's that's kind of what we thought of, and so we came to this conclusion that at the end of the day, I think what's important is just finding a way to work through it. And you may not be able to solve it immediately, but just starting that process of somehow working through the problem, it's you you find a way eventually. Yeah. You know, there's, there's certain things in my life when I look back now, cause you know, this has been, you know, over a decade since this situation took mm-hmm. place since this experience. Um, it's still very fresh, even, you know, even 13 years later, uh, my son's 13 now that I place for adoption. And so, um, but to have it still so fresh, even all these years later is just a powerful reminder that the grief doesn't go away. Like we, we live in it all the time, but we have to learn how to expand around the grief and learn to coexist with it and it and have it become a part of who we are and still be able to be healthy functioning individuals. And I look back and I hold so much shame around that time in the hospital and that suicide attempt because I look now, it might've been over for me, mm-hmm. But the generations, I mean, generations of people that would have been affected by that decision um, really just brings me to my knees. And and I know that this is such a sensitive subject. And I know that there's so many people listening that have either been in the situation where they've wanted to, um, that they thought suicide was the answer or have had people in their life that made that decision. So I know this is so tough, but I know looking back now, if I would have been able to have conversation, if I would have had tools and resources to process and and understand the things that were happening to me, I think that that wouldn't even have been on the table. Mm-hmm. But I was so consumed with the grief and overwhelmed by trying to figure this out, and I was so alone. Mm-hmm. And grief, grief is the greatest liar, right? It isolates intentionally. And it tells you that your pain is so unique that no one will understand. I went through years literally thinking I was the only woman that had gotten pregnant and placed her child for adoption. I mean, that's absurd. Now I can't even spit without hitting somebody that has a tie to adoption of some kind. Mm -hmm. But my grief lied to me for years saying that no one will get it and you are all alone in this. And that is a lie. And people need to know that that is a lie and draw out of isolation and find people they can talk to. You bring up a really good point, And that is, sounds like you had come to a realization when you were going through that moment that this is so much bigger than you. And I think that's what most of us need to understand is that the problems in the situations that we're going through they're so much bigger than us. So it really does come down to finding a way to persevere and yeah. not accepting the situation as a reality because you don't know how you're going to impact the people around you. And I think the other thing that's important to note within that is every single person has an ability to impact at least one other person. So it really comes down to the decision that you make, whether it comes to having problems with finances, having um, certain problems with grief or processing certain losses in life, and just, just going through that journey and being able to say, I am not going to let that become my reality. Mm-hmm. And as part of that, I, I mean, I, I know this happens. There's, a, there's always someone watching you, always. They may not tell you directly, hey, Ashley, I'm yeah. watching you right now. But they're watching you. They're, they're watching how you go through it. And you just never know what type of example you can play for them when they experience a similar problem like that down the road. Yeah, I definitely think that, well, I mean, I'm a perfect example because the only reason why I'm sitting here and sharing my story with you is because of examples that I had of people being bold and sharing their stories <laughs> mm-hmm. that, that inspired me to step forward and share mine too. Um, and I know that 
um, so much of that circumstance was so temporary. Some of these things were so temporary. Um, and I'm like, if you can just push through, if you can just, you talked about persevering, you know, endure well, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because on the other side of it, there's so much more and so much worth living for and showing up for in these very hard temporary seasons. I mean, in the big picture, it felt like my entire existence, but in the big picture, it was such a small season. Mm-hmm. Now that I'm on the other side of it, if we can endure well and get to that other side, but we need people to stand with us and resources to do that. One of the things that was so powerful when I was in the hospital um, was to sit down with this psychiatrist. I mean, I had a whole team of people. <laughs> I needed a whole team of mental health professionals to help me. But you know what? Mental health is so hot right now. Like, come on, guys. <laughs> like, let's get with the program. We need some mental health. Um, and I, that team sat with me and they're like, you are not fine. So stop. You're in a space literal, like the lowest of the low rock bottom right now you're not fine and it's okay to not be fine. And for the first time I was provided a space where I could just be Mm -hmm. and let the grief. And it was so painful because this has been almost five years since the loss of my son, plus all the shit that I piled on top of it for five years. Mm -hmm. And it was like, I was able to sit with complete strangers, knee to knee in that in that mental, mental hospital and feel everything that I needed to feel and be validated in that. And in that moment, my, my entire life changed, um, to be able to feel what I needed to feel, to be able to have people help me explain what I was feeling, to be able to put a name to my grief. Oh my gosh, if we can name it, Mm-hmm. Well, then we know what we're dealing with and we know how to handle it and work with it. And it was powerful. It was life-changing. I would not wish that kind of breakdown on anybody, but that attempt to end my life literally saved my life mm-hmm. because it forced me into a place to be able to own and accept and feel everything that was going on. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was hard and it was so sad and but it was it was so freeing it was so freeing to finally grieve and acknowledge it. i'm a shit show right now and it's okay that was freeing for me to be like i am a mess right now mm-hmm. it was awesome it was awesome and it changed my life do you remember who was there for you from besides the people at the hospital but any of your friends any of the families and the other part of the question is, after a moment like that, did it make you redefine your support group and the people that were really there for you no matter what? So I was living with my now husband. My husband and I have been married ten, over 10 years, mm-hmm. and he was there like at rock bottom. So <laughs> God bless him <laughs> because he literally, I mean, saw me at my ultimate worst and was there to pick me up when I walked out of that hospital. We were dating at the time and he walked out and it was like, I mean, you, I mean, we're, we're just gonna lay it all out on the table. If you still want in, like I'm here, you know? And he was just like, wow, like you've got some shit, but I'm here and you're, you're healing and, and I support you and it was amazing. So he definitely was, um, when I came home, you know, he was, he was it. He was the person. Mm-hmm. Um, my family, um, I love my family. My family's amazing, but they, you know, this, this all happened to them too. They were trying to process how they felt about it. And, you know, my parents lost a grandchild when I placed my son for adoption and everyone grieves in their own way and handles things in their own way. And so, I had to learn to, um, I, I wanted people to respect me in the way that I needed to process. I had to learn to give that in return, Hmm. um, because they had to process this loss and this 
shame and disappointment um, and their guilt um, as parents, they had to handle that in their own way. And I had to offer a lot of grace and room for them to do that, even if it's not how I would have wanted them to do it. Um, because our choices, we think like, well, I can make my own decisions. Like this is my life, but it's not. We talked about the generational effects of our choices and my choices and my carelessness, um, affected everybody. They affected everybody around me. And I hurt, um, I hurt a lot of people, (laughs) people that I love and care about so much. I hurt so many people and some of them were able to rise up and stand with me. And some of them, the pain was too much and I hurt them too. And I, I have to be okay with them needing to walk away because that's part of, that's just part of it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, That just ended up being part of the train wreck that I didn't even know myself was coming and they were part of the wreckage. And some people were able to um, heal and stand with me and some people weren't. And I had to be able to show grace in that if they needed to step away. And that's, um, it's hard to know that we've inflicted intentionally or not. I don't believe that people intentionally just try and hurt people. I don't think people Mm -hmm. are that cruel, but in seasons like this, um, I, we want people to like, understand, like, you don't like, you know, I was in so much pain. I didn't mean it. Like I was just suffering. Um, but I think we have to be respectful and say, no, I treated you horribly and I understand why you need to walk away. Mm Mm-hmm. And people are different chapters of their lives at all times. So it's, I think it's only reasonable to expect for certain people to may not be able to handle a situation like that because they weren't there yet. Yeah. They haven't experienced and they weren't able to maybe like relate on the same level. Yeah. And we don't get to be, we don't get to sit in victimhood and they left me and they didn't support me and they didn't care about me. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but I think this is part of being able to talk about things that we've been through and take ownership over that when we stop being a victim and start owning our decisions that they affected other people that I think we can show a lot more grace for those that, that aren't in a season to sit with you. Mm-hmm. So I've come to a realization recently as, as I started to look at my journey and it's very relevant to what you just said. And that is really accepting your past. What I've learned is that it was for me, what came was that it was moments when I accepted my past, especially when it came to the actions that my birth mom took in her life. And so I, it was so beautiful to be able to go through that journey and write about it and talk about it with other people to really process it on every level I could. And what I realized was that despite of all the decisions that she had made, which I fully forgive her for, she gave me one of the biggest skills that is a part of me on a daily basis. And it's the skill of never giving up the drive, the persistence, because, you know, there's a particular memory that I go back to or that I shared with other people as part of this realization. And that is on the days when I used to go out there and I look for her. I used to go to the different apartments where I thought she would be and very rarely would I find her. In fact, most times I wouldn't find her at all. But I I had this vision in my mind that just kept telling me one more, just go check out one more apartment, Mm. just one more. And every day I kept pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. And what I've learned literally now at this point is that she's one of the biggest driving forces in helping me develop this drive to not give up, to make that next phone call, to connect with that one more person. And, but yet that's a lef- lesson that was unspoken. Yeah. And so it's, it, it really comes down to, based on my experience, to accepting it. I think the faster you're able to accept the moments for what they are, the faster you're able to identify the actual lessons learned within that. And it all goes back to how you look at it. Reframing your mindset is the biggest component of it all, I think. I think the adversities and the challenges happen for a reason. 
They're supposed to teach you some of your greatest skills. You know, in your case, you went through these situations that you did. And yes, you could have had the mindset of, well, how could this happen to me? What have I done? I didn't do anything wrong. But instead, you turned it around and look what you're doing now. Yeah. You know, speaking of paying back, you used that experience. You looked at it and you said, okay, this is just is, but what am I going to do with it? I can sit here and I can bottle that experience or I can use this experience to help lift others up because I know for a fact, and this is true for every single challenge we experience, we are never alone. That's That's been proven. We are only alone if we decide to be alone. Yeah, I, I agree with that so much. And, you know, we talk all the time about, you know, we hear all this, you know, it didn't happen to you, it happened for you. Mm-hmm. You talk about reframing that mindset of what can we draw from this and not that every single thing that we experience has to be this big, huge cosmic universal lesson, mm-hmm. but sometimes it needs to be. And I, after I left the hospital and had a name to what I was dealing with in my grief and like, Oh my gosh, I lost my son. And that's sad. And being able to actually process that because the whole time I'd been told that I was doing this amazing thing and I gave this beautiful gift and you helped this family, you know, mm-hmm. bring this child home because I came from domestic infant adoption. So I pursued this open adoption plan and you know, I, well, I can't feel bad about that because I did this amazing thing, right? And so mm-hmm. um, when I was finally able to leave the hospital and come home and had the tools, then it was like, you know, I talk about those game-changing moments, right? Those like aha moments where it's like, oh, now shit's going to get real. Like mm-hmm. now we know what we're dealing with, right? And I was like, there, there has to be other women out there. There's no way, there's no way after I was able to like silence the grief and like not listen to the lies and the, you know, the gremlin in our head, all this, the shit talking that goes on all the time in our head, the lies that we tell ourselves, I was able to say, there's gotta be other women out there. Mm -hmm. There's gotta be other women out there. And I need to, I need to, I'm a writer and a talker and a processor publicly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I needed to talk about it to get it out of my head. Cause if it just sat in there and sat in my heart, I, I already knew what that looked like. It looked like, <laughs> you know, someone almost killing somebody in a drunk driving accident. I knew that that wasn't working. So I had to find a different way to process. And for me, it was public. And so I started writing on a blog, mm-hmm. <laughs> like an old blog. And I was like, I didn't care if anyone heard or listened, but I needed to get it out. And so I started to write and, women randomly over the years started to ride back Hmm. and, and I was bleeding it out on my computer and women were starting to listen. And because I didn't know this story was so intense and so hard and literally life-changing shifted my entire identity that I didn't know how to share it in any other way, but just 100% raw, authentic transparency. Mm-hmm. And people love me and hate me for that, which is fine. But I don't know how else to share this because it's so intimate. And, you know, people are like, oh, you know, we talk about oversharers and I'm a total oversharer. But I, I need... That's how I continue to stay authentic and own the things that have happened to me is to be honest about what it looked like. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how to sugarcoat and pretend that those things aren't real. And so over the years, women started to come to me and share that my story was their story. And all of a sudden, we started to build this community. And when it was like just having one person come to me and say, me too, right? Mm -hmm. To come to me and say, oh my gosh, everything that you wrote, I couldn't ever do that. But everything that you said, it was like you were speaking everything that I'm feeling. Oh my God, I, I was lit up by all these women that couldn't speak, 
but that were feeling everything that I was feeling. Mm-hmm. And it was it was life changing to find women that could validate me in my crazy <laughs> say you're not crazy me like I've done that too and and it was awesome it was awesome and we started to build community and change change the way women saw themselves and um inspired them to get help and not sit in their grief and trauma and it's been amazing it's amazing space to sit in Mm -hmm. you bring up a really good point and that is deciding to go public with your story Mm -hmm. because i'm a huge believer in that and i I practice it on a daily basis i believe that the more public you become the more you are able to allow an invitation for other people to come into your life because when you really think about it on a granular level we we may think that we're the ones that are solving all these problems and that are creating all this impact <laughs> but really it's it's the combination of thousands and thousands of lives yeah. and the voices that continue to speak into our lives that we have we have allowed over the years that are really transforming other people's lives so we've done that for many years, but I think we, we've come to this point where we started to look at, well, you should only talk about this much about your life when it comes to this area or don't overshare, you know, because it, it comes back to you. And no person can tell you that you're oversharing unless you have admitted that yourself. Um. So if you think you're doing the right thing as far as I'm putting out the perfect amount of information out there because not only is it helping other people but it's also helping me grow which is the most important part of it all is that at the end of the day you have to evolve as well yeah if you are choosing to be the front runner in this area to help other people come in and be themselves you have to continue to evolve you can't stay stagnant because once you stay stagnant then there's no growth that happens and you're not able to reflect. And so it's it's almost like you're playing that game where you you have to be a couple of steps ahead, but not not to a point where there's so much ego involved in this. Okay, I'm so much better than you. You know, I've yeah. done this. Yeah. But it's like, no, I'm, I'm constantly pushing myself to get through it so that I could continue to impact other people around it who may not be at the same level that I'm at. Yeah. And we see this a lot and we've talked about this before, you know, and I about, you know, we, we started sharing because we needed to share. Mm -hmm. I mean, it started for our own healing and continues to be that. And what's been really cool is what we're offering really at the heart of it is a space for self-discovery for other people. Yes. We share to light a spark in somebody for them to recognize something within themselves. It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with the self-discovery that happens with the people that listen. And I'm 13 years out and my son, uh, for example, just turned 13 in April. And we have a, we have an amazing open adoption relationship. We've been able to have incredible experiences um, with our two families. Um, But I couldn't see him this year. Mm-hmm. Um, they sent me weekends. You know, we usually, there's a great hotel where they live. We usually go stay. The kids like to swim. My husband and I have two kids. And so he has half siblings and we always have this great time. And it was time for his birthday and we were going to go meet. And I couldn't even call the hotel and make a reservation. We are never done. We are always growing and evolving and changing and peeling back layers of grief and trauma. And 13 years later, I'm still wrecked and couldn't show up for a birthday this year. Mm-hmm. And so we adjust processes. We adjust, <laughs> we adjust our communication. Um, we work with helping him process me not being able to be present that month. Um, and implement the tools that we need to, to make sure that we can show up this summer. And it, and I'm in the throes of it all the time. It's never about me being, well, I'm 13 years out and you're only two years out. So you need to listen to me. It's Mm -hmm. I'm still 13 years out. I'm still trying to figure this shit out because you just never know when this stuff is going to hit you. And people that get so comfortable 
in, we get going along and things are feeling good and everything's fine and there's no major upheaval or anything, you know, I think that's a dangerous space to sit in because something is always (laughs) going to come up. There's always going to be something that's going to challenge us and humble us and knock us down and remind us that um, in our humanity, we are still just trying to figure it all out. And so, um, you know, this year has been a really hard year, year 13, who knew, like, I didn't know that that was going to be a thing year 13, but it's kicked my butt. And, um, it's been really awesome to be able to process that, um, with our communities to say, Hey, look, Mm -hmm. I don't care how far you are out of any of your grief or trauma. Like it's, it always exists. And it doesn't ask permission when it wants to show up. And we just have to hopefully have the resources and the tools and the knowledge and the support systems to process when it shows up. Mm -hmm. And that's where it gets really dangerous is if I was 13 years out and this stuff was coming up, I would be right back where I was. Mm -hmm. But because I've learned, because I have community, because I'm proactive in my mental health, I've been able to be like, oh, okay, here's something new, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but I have the tools and the resources to be able to process it in a healthier way than I ever did before. Um, But it's never about being done and just Mm -hmm. being, you know, on this pedestal. It's about saying, no, we're still in the throes all the time. Mm -hmm. Take us through that moment, if you could, of when you found out that you couldn't see him, what what went through your mind, how'd you feel, and ultimately, how were you able to work through that? to a degree. So we're still working through it. (laughs) Um, I think one of the hardest things, uh, there's some really awesome, amazing things about open adoption, but one of the really hard things I, I tell people, I don't think that my open adoption really started until my son, the adopted person started to have an opinion. And then Mm -hmm. I was like, Oh, now we're really starting the open adoption process. Because before it was the two moms negotiating everything, right? Mm -hmm. It was the adoptive mom and the biological mom trying to say, well, when can we do visits, you know, exchanging, you know, emails, pictures, things like that. But then all of a sudden, Derek, my son had a voice and had something to say and had opinions and had needs. And that's when I think we really stepped into our open adoption when it was really serving the adopted child. Cause isn't that what this is supposed to be about anyway? Mm-hmm. Right. So I think the hardest thing for me now in this new season of open adoption, that's new with a 13 year old is that he has opinions and feelings. And I know that he was disappointed that I couldn't show up. And I know that he's old enough now to process those things and how he feels about those things. And why can't after 13 years, I get my shit together to show up for him because we work really hard on, we're going to show up in whatever way Derek needs. And then we'll process individually and together to work through the emotions of it. But this year was different. It was just one of those things that I was just like, I cannot be present. Um, I was, I have so much anger around that and, and I beat myself up about that and disappointed, you know, because I'm on this platform and I should be fine Mm -hmm. now, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm fine still using that same crap that doesn't work. Um, but I think one of the hard things, I, I think it's powerful for me to be able to communicate and say, Hey, look, I can't show up right now. This is why and be able to talk to him and his mom about that and how we process that his parents about that and process that. And find ways that we can make sure that maybe, you know, in a couple months that we can revisit that. Um, so I think that's healthy. But I know that there's a 13-year-old boy who asked for a visit because he wanted to see me. Mm. And I couldn't show up. And that... Um, that's so hard. Uh, as parents, we just want to show up for our kids. And the situation's so different, but I still, I want him, I want to show up for him and I couldn't. And that's, um, I think that's the hardest thing. So again, (laughs) working with another team of mental health professionals, I have all kinds of therapists. Back to square one. Yeah. I I mean, 
you know, the, they work for a reason. I mean, mm-hmm. at least I'm consistent, right? Again, we go, we go all the way. So we've got a team of people working with me and I, the difference is now is that although I'm, I'm so sad and, and heartbroken about, um, not being able to show up for him, there's no shame in me needing to get the mental health and building this team of people to keep me healthy mm-hmm. where before it was so embarrassing and shameful. And I had tried to put on this act for so many years and now I'm showing up and saying, no, this is hard and I need help and I need support through this. And so I, I, I've loved that perspective 13 years later to say, Hey, there is no shame in me needing a team of mental health professionals to get me through this season of life that I'm in. And I'm aware that it's a season Mm -hmm. because I know what's on the other side. And so it's not a suicide issue. It's not, we've grown past that to know this is a temporary season and there's no shame in needing to build a team of people that can help me Mm -hmm. and get me through it. And we'll get on the other side and it's going to be okay. (laughs) It sucks right now, but I know that it's going to be okay. And I'm not embarrassed as a 39-year-old woman that I have a team of mental health professionals working with me. Mm -hmm. There is. I have no shame in that. Mm -hmm. And I wish more people would have more confidence and pride in the fact that, yeah, I'm getting people to help me because... I know what it looks like if I don't, and mm-hmm. I am not interested in doing in living that again. Mm-hmm. You bring up a really good point because I think it speaks to so many different groups. One of the groups that I think of in particular is uh, some of my friends that I have, closest friends, and I respect them and will always be in the friendship with them. But I remember the most recent conversation I was having with one of them, and he had uh, mentioned this problem that he was having with his business. And it kind of related to a lot of the things that I've been able to do over time, and that is marketing and helping people structure plans and stuff. And I just asked him an honest question. I said, why have you not called me? And he <laughs> said, well, I I don't know. I didn't want to ask for help. Yeah. And so it, it's really interesting because then it makes you think, well, how good of a friend really are you? If you haven't, if both of you, because it's, it's always a two-way road, if both of you haven't found the tools to create this foundation where either one feels comfortable enough to say, Hey, I need help. Yeah. You know, can you help me out with this? And it goes beyond that. I mean, helping with business is one thing, but you, you may struggle in other areas. And so what's going to happen when he gets to that? Yeah. You're not going to be able to ask that question. So it really just, I think, boils down to what you just said, being aware that there are things that are happening and it, it does come down to recognizing it and then stepping into the unknown, yeah. which is the shame, the embarrassment, and the guilt that you face throughout a lot of that process. But at the end of the day, it all goes back to how you look at it. Do you choose to look at that situation and feel embarrassed, feel guilty, feel ashamed? Or do you choose to look at it in a way that I need this? I have to go through this. I have to have this group of mental health professionals around me at this particular age. And even though there might be stigma associated with it, as far as other adults, other adults, other people may think, okay, she's... <laughs> 39 years old and she's still relying on that (laughs) you know same thing with therapy like i i've i'm a i've i have a complete opposite view of what therapy is at this point because as i'm writing this book one of the things that i'm able to do is one of my friends uh, she's helping me just by asking me questions and it, it just made me think therapy has such a interesting stigma because we think that Oh, I need therapy because there's something wrong with me. No, you 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 need therapy because you may just need a space to process, yeah. to be a human being, or find ways to process so you don't have to talk to another person. Writing or listening to yourself, doing stuff like this. This is all form of therapy. That's right. It's a platform for you to 
validate your existence and to share what you've learned and possibly learn takeaways from your experiences. Yeah. And, you know, I know there's people listening that are going to be in a season. Again, we talk a lot about, you know, people that just might not be there yet that might be in the throes of this very early on. And I'm saying, Hey, go to therapy, like get your shit together. Like, you know, and I recognize that with perspective, I'm 13 years out to say, I know what my life looks like without this kind of support. Mm-hmm. People might not have that perspective that are listening and that's okay. But I'm not telling you that you have to go lay on the brown couch and spill your guts to, to a therapist in a, in a clinical office. Mm-hmm find a space, find people. We talked about that when I was in the hospital. That was the thing is that I was finally allowed space to feel and process what I was going through. I don't care what that looks like for you. You don't have to have a national platform. You don't have to have tens of thousands of followers on social media. I don't give a Mm -hmm. shit about any of that. Mm -hmm. Just find a space where you can be and process and feel everything that you need to feel. And I don't care what that looks like because it looks different for everybody, but all of these things are helpful forms of therapy in some, in some capacity or another. Mm-hmm. I don't care what it is, but find a space that's safe. We talk all the time about, um, Brene Brown even talks about, you know, new, know who you're sharing your shame with. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily encourage people to get on a public platform and just vomit all over everybody <laughs> because there's a lot of negative that comes with that. And some people just aren't ready to receive that. They need, they're, they're so tender and vulnerable and they need a space that's safe. I don't care what it is. All of you that are listening, I don't care where it is and who it is. Find a space that you can just be, that is a form of therapy. It doesn't have to be clinical. It doesn't have to be with a licensed professional, but find your space because we can't just sit in it anymore. Mm -hmm. Final thought for today's episode. And the question is, who do you have to forgive to move forward with your story? Uh, wow. (laughs) That was not on my list of questions that you sent me. (laughs) Um, 100%, one, um, it was so easy for me to get mad at so many people and, and totally justified in some of the stuff that had happened. People that had been a part of all of these different things. Um, but at the end of the day, that finger went right to me. I was the most mad at myself. I was Mm -hmm. so angry at myself that I cared so little about myself that I didn't think that I had any value to uh, step up and protect myself from getting pregnant to begin with, um, to not have the courage to sit with somebody and share the things that were going on. I kept waiting for people to show up for me and they didn't and I was so angry. No, shame on me. Um, no one forced me to make the kind of self-destructive, careless decisions that I made. Now, was it justified because of the pain that I was in? Maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, we, we can make excuses all day, right? Mm-hmm. We, we are a society of making excuses with little ownership. But at the end of the day, the person I was most mad at was myself. And, um... I had to work really hard to, to, to forgive myself. Um, I really did the best that I could with what I had and I had to be okay with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I didn't go to my guidance counselor in high school and say, I want to be a birth mom when I grow up and I want to have all this trauma in my life. Like that's not, that wasn't that. I, I feel like I let myself down and I had so much more quote unquote potential to do things different than they were. And I wasted my twenties and blah, blah. And all of this stuff, you know, I had to grieve this life of who I wanted to become. Mm-hmm. And I was so angry at myself. And so a uh, number one person on the long list of people to forgive is myself. It started with me. And it wasn't until I was able to point the finger and take ownership and responsibility for the choices that I had made that I was able to find freedom in forgiving everybody else involved 
And finally, now I could say, now I'm in control of where I'm going. And that is the goal because I can sit in all of this past stuff, but now I can forgive myself and take ownership and say, look, it happened. You did the best that you could. And now we're going to move forward. And now what are you going to do? Because you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't talking about it and people weren't talking to me, but I know better now. And so we're not going to do that again. And so now we can move forward. Um, empowered in knowledge and community and and responsibility. And I think that that's, that's where it has to start is with ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well said. Ashley, how do people find you? What are some of the things that you have coming up that people can be a part of? Um, like you mentioned before, I'm on Big Tough Girl on most social media platforms, except for I'm too old for Snapchat, so I'm not cool enough for that. Um, find me on Big Tough Girl. You can go to lifetimehealingadoption.com and find everything that we're doing in the adoption community to really provide a space for birth mothers like myself to come and get healing and support, and it's free. So all of the mental health um tools that are necessary for women to move forward after placing children for adoption are becoming now a standard and not a luxury. And I'm just asking you to show up mm-hmm. and we're providing the space. So incredible. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story and thank you for just being you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for having me. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't done so already, feel free to subscribe to our weekly newsletter so you can receive all of the latest episodes, featured stand-up and speak-up stories, and ways you can be involved with Overcoming Odds. Once again, thank you for listening, and we'll look forward to having you next week.